Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, online at independent.org. We also have our uh, latest print edition out on street on street boxes or across the city, public libraries, independent bookstores, and other places. And I'm also joined by my independent colleague, Amma Gagarian. It's great to be here with you and all our listeners on WBAI 99.5. Streaming on WBAI.org. We've got a fantastic final show of 2021 in store for today. Yeah, uh, t- uh, tell me more about that, Amba. City public hospital nurse about Omicron and what lies ahead from a healthcare worker perspective. So I'm going to speak with Amazon workers on Staten Island to have refiled to hold a union election at their warehouse, and we're going to look at what's happening with a group of more than 200 women prisoners who were transferred from Rikers Island to an even worse prison upstate. But first, we want to ask uh, we want to ask our listeners to to give to WBAI's Tower Fund Drive. WBAI is doing an emergency fund drive this month to raise the $250,000 needed to cover the rent for all of 2022. This will help keep the station's transmitter and antenna on top of four times square, uh, beaming across New York City and the greater New York City region. The the transmitter and the antenna, they're on top of a 52-story skyscraper, four times square, right in the heart of Midtown. Being there allows WBAI's signal to reach 100 miles in all directions to a potential audience of 20 million people. But to keep that going, we need the support of our listeners. You can call 212-209-2950 or go online to give number two WBAI.org. And again, that number is 212-209-2950, or go to give, the number 2, WBAI.org. This community radio station is powered by listeners like you guys, 212-209-2950, or online at give, the number 2, WBAI.org. Thanks, Samba. We're going to be talking more about the emergency power fund drive during the show, but now we turn to our first guest. Sean Petty. Sean is a pediatric emergency room nurse at Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx. He's also an activist in the New York State Nurses Association, the union that represents 42,000 nurses in New York. In a March 18, 2020 interview with the Independent at the onset of the COVID pandemic here in New York, Sean warned, quote, I'm running out of words to describe how dangerous and scary all of this is. We know what followed afterwards. Now with the Omicron variant sweeping across New York City and the country, Sean is alarmed once again. Sean, welcome to the Independent News Hour on 99.5 FM. Thanks, John and Amber. Good to be here. Great. And so for starters, uh, what's the view of the Omicron variant from a New York's city hospital so far, and how do you expect the situation to change in the coming days and weeks? Um, well, the view um, uh, from from our perspective on in, in the emergency room uh, is one of uh, growing uh, daily um, unraveling of, of a whole number of different uh, dynamics. Um, 
and it, and it's once again very scary. Um, my my close colleague and, and close uh, union activist and and fighter Kelly Cabrera, who I work on the pediatric side, she works on the adult side. Um, she texted me today and said this was um, the worst day she's ever worked, uh, including March and April of 2020. Um, and it's for a. a a couple different reasons. One is that in the initial wave, there was an incredible amount of uh, death, uh, viral spread, and um, really traumatizing um, uh, amount of uh, care that we had to deliver and, and attempts to save lives that we had to deliver. But right now, what's complicated, there's not as much there, there is that, um, that, that Omicron and Delta are, are, um, are um, meeting out in terms of the the actual um, severity of the illness for unvaccinated and for vaccinated people. Um, this this virus is hospitalizing and killing people, um, and we are seeing that. Uh, what we're seeing though is that initially in March and April of 2020 there was a lockdown, and so we didn't see all the other things that people were getting sick with uh, and all the other things that an emergency room and a level one trauma center that we are um, see every day. So we, on top of the rising uh, COVID um, people who are ill from COVID uh, we are also seeing, um, we also continue to care for uh, gunshot wounds, car accidents, um, asthma, uh, a profound amount of already existing circulating disease um, and and um, and sick people of the Bronx, uh, which was mitigated by the lockdown uh, last time. So, uh, and also that is in the same, we, we also received a deluge of extra nurses uh, to weather that storm. Uh, and because New York was the, the epicenter of that outbreak. Now everybody is dealing with the same thing at the same time. And so nurses um, who have gone through this are completely um, under moral distress and are leaving the profession. They're transferring to other facilities. The turnover has skyrocketed over the last year. And so we're in a, we have a much less experienced workforce. We have a much more precarious workforce. And we have a patient volume overload, both with COVID and non-COVID patients. That makes this uh, this actual situation in an emergency room right now in New York City um, Yeah, that sounds, I mean, that sounds really serious. And um, uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, with Omicron spreading like wildfire, uh, the president's chief medical advisor, Anthony Fauci, told CNN's Jim Acosta on Monday that shortened quarantine, the, the shortened quarantine time that the CDC is now proposing of five days instead of 10 uh, is to get people back to work. Uh, let's listen to that and, and get your reaction. Why is the CDC now changing these uh, recommended uh, isolation times for people who test positive for the virus uh, but don't have symptoms? I I guess the simple question is why now? Well, the reason is that with with the sheer volume of new cases 
that we are having and that we expect to continue with Omicron, one of the things we want to be careful of is that we don't have so many people out. I mean, obviously, if you have symptoms, you should not be out. But if you are asymptomatic and you are infected, we want to get people back to the jobs, particularly those with essential jobs, to keep our society running smoothly. Sean, your reaction? I think we may have lost Sean. Oh, Sean, he, he, he blipped out for a moment, but I think Sean okay. is back. Were you able to hear that, um, Sean? Of I was Fauci? Sorry. Okay. Should we replay, Reggie, can we replay the, the thought? Is the CDC now changing these uh, recommended uh, isolation times for people who test positive for the virus uh, but don't have s symptoms? I, gu I guess the simple question is why now? Well, the reason is that with the, with the sheer volume of new cases that we are having and that we expect to continue with Omicron, one of the things we want to be careful of is that we don't have so many people out I mean, obviously, if you have symptoms, you should not be out. But if you are asymptomatic and you are infected, we want to get people back to the jobs, particularly those with essential jobs, to keep our society running smoothly. So what's your reaction to that? Well, um, my reaction is, um, why are they um, prioritizing the functioning of a for-profit economy at the expense of the health of um, millions. Um, the, um, of course, there's the need, like, like in the lockdown, there was a need for essential workers to keep, um, to, to keep society functioning and to get basic goods and services. But if you look at the list of essential workers that are uh, subject to this five-day quarantine, it's everything. I mean, we have sports teams that are still having um, audiences of 15,000 um, people in their um, uh, in stadiums all across this country. They're, they're letting this virus rip throughout all of this country. And they have no, um, the, the profit at every step is being prioritized over trying to slow and stop this variant. There are, um, there are um, a lot of um, there are a lot of uh, sorry I'm, I'm getting some feedback noise. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, prioritization of um, corporate interests uh, that are that what fauci is speaking of. it's it's not about maintaining essential services. it's about maintaining the economy as normal. They've decided to let this virus run rough shot. Uh, and let this variant in particular run roughshod over the entire country. And sure, there's the, the vaccinated, there are, some, there are some vaccinated people who will be fine. There are many vaccinated people who will be fine. There will be many vaccinated people who will not be fine. There will be many vaccinated people who will get long COVID, will get hospitalized, will die, have, have already died from Omicron. There will be uh, an unvaccinated people will be far worse. Um, there will be children that will die. Um, uh, there will be children that will be hospitalized. Right now, the latest story, uh, uh, the latest reports are that um, pediatric hospitalizations have increased 
four times in the last uh, month, uh, four, 400% in the last month. So um, at every step of the way, they've tried to shift goalposts, whether it's about the CDC uh, saying N95s, surgical masks are okay to take care of COVID patients or, um, in hospitals uh, because we don't know if it's airborne yet. Uh, because they were short on N95 masks, not for scientific, not because it was backed up by the science, but because it was related to the supply that they had on hand and their lack of preparation. And now again, they're changing the quarantine, not based on what the science tells you, but based on the need of, of, the, of an economy that has completely done nothing to deal with the profound uh, inadequacy of our healthcare system to handle this virus. We have very little investment in um, in training healthcare personnel, we've known that we've had a nursing shortage problem for throughout this pandemic, and nothing has been done to deal with that. Um, so this idea that we need to keep this economy going at all costs, and we need to keep the profits of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, you know, flowing throughout this pandemic at the expense of uh, of everybody. Uh, being exposed to this virus is a very cold calculation that they're making and that respected figures like Fauci and uh, Governor Hochul in New York and many other people are are making uh, right now. And this is a bipartisan project. Um, the, the one tragedy from this situation is that people are so disgusted by Trump's handling of the virus. But what most people don't fully grapple with is that Biden's policies um, around COVID are essentially the same, which is just rely on the vaccine and let everything else rip. And that's, you know, the only difference maybe, you know, that Biden wears a mask and Trump did it. Um, and right. so um, that that's something that that we as people who have experienced the healthcare system and its inadequacies and people that see the impact of it on every day have to continue to uh, speak out about because there is Unfortunately, far too little difference between Biden's handling of this pandemic and, and Trump's handling of this pandemic. And they've both been disastrous and they've both killed hundreds of thousands of people unnecessarily. And, and coming back to your hospital in, in the Bronx, can you talk a little bit more about the, the staffing situation and the morale of the of the workers and also the, the brain drain that you all have, have experienced as many uh experienced uh, workers have left and they've had to find whoever they can to replace them. Sure. I mean, um, we've never experienced the the last two years, we've never experienced turnover like we've experienced in my entire 14 year career. Uh, We've had rough economic times. We've had um, bad staffing cuts. Uh, We've had, we've worked short staff and and, uh, pretty chronically throughout, but nothing nothing comes close to comparing to the amount of uh, pressure and moral distress that nurses have suffered over this last two years without any relief, without any uh, uh, services to support our profession and to, and to fix the, the chronic endemic problems that have been laid bare uh, by this pandemic. Um, for instance, in um, next door in the adult emergency room department, by the hospital's own estimates, it takes over 100 nurses to um, to to fully staff the that unit, and right now we have uh, less than uh, less than fifty. I think the last count was fifty three full time nurses 
and about uh, 20 to 30 agency nursing staff trying to run that department. So we had, and out of those 50, a uh, little over 50 full-time nurses, uh, less than half of those have been there for longer than three or four years. Um, and it's the same on my side in pediatric. It takes about 25 to 27 nurses to run our department. Um, and we have about less than, we have less than 10 that have been there for more than four years. So, um, and what does that brain mean? Drain- what does that mean like in, in terms of day-to-day practice when, especially as more patients are pouring in uh, with the Omicron variant? It means that newer nurses have more difficulty multitasking. Um, newer nurses have more difficulty getting IVs. Newer nurses have more difficulty um, uh, being uh, safely administering multiple medications at the same time. When you're in a trauma and you can't get an IV on a patient that's bleeding out, that's a problem. Uh, when you're in, um, when you're, when somebody's sick and they need, you know, rapid infusion of uh, blood product through our specialized equipment, and that nurse doesn't know how to operate that equipment, or an agency nurse that just got hired doesn't know where the blood bank is, um, then that's a problem. And, um, and that is, and, and also, you know, you're talking about the amount of patient overload, uh, nurses in the adult emergency room are taking care of uh, 10 uh, over 10 patients at a time, inclusive of patients who are bound for the intensive care unit, bound for hospital, bound for the other inpatient units. Um, these are sick patients, and there's there's many, many sick patients that nurses are being asked to care for. And so you have to juggle a ton, and you have to be experienced to be able to do that m- even moderately safely. Uh, it's, not, it's not safe to it's not safe for a nurse with 20 years experience to take care of that many patients. And it's far less, it's far less safe for a nurse uh, with two years experience or an agency nurse that's not familiar with the unit to, to take care of the patients. So uh, the brain drain, the percentage of agency staff versus full-time staff uh, there also is a profound, we're hiring, we're constantly hiring new people, but there's nobody to train the new nurses. So, you have, we have had nurses who have been precepting new nurses throughout this entire time and are completely unable to do adequate job in training new nurses because they have to take care of those 10 patients and train the new nurses at the same time. And it's just impossible. And so it adds to the, to the stress. I I will never, I will stop you ever using the word burnout because uh, it, it makes it seem like this is just like a, a natural process or a, you know, uh, a process that is like some flaw of a nurse. I prefer to use the term uh, that, that National Nurses United uses, which is called moral distress. With the amount of nurses that have moral distress right now, it's not that we're not, uh, we can't do our jobs. It's that we are unable, we, we are not given the resources to be able to do our jobs. We're not failing at doing our jobs. Uh, they're failing at providing the any sort of, uh, any sort of support for right. us to be able to do our jobs. Right. So, Just another weakness of the, of the public, of the for-profit healthcare system. So Sean, we're going to, um, shift gear just a little bit and talk about, um, you know, the public has been scrambling to obtain COVID test kits during the holiday travel season, season, but the Biden administration has done very little to, to do to make them widely available. Excuse me. Now we're going to listen to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki being asked earlier this month about test availability. 
So why not just make them free and give them out to, and have them available everywhere? Should we just send one to every American? Maybe. Then, then what? Ha then what happens if you if every American has one test? How much does that cost? And then what happens after that? We talked a little bit about your your reaction to the Biden administration's response, but get a little bit deeper in, in how you your assessment of how they've handled things over the past year since he took power. Yeah, that kind of um, snarky, like, what do you what do you want us to do? The basic ABCs of what other countries have done to completely control the spread of this virus and to what do you want us to do be south korea be new zealand and make sure there's like actually a small percentage of your population dies of this virus and like do the abcs of you know test trace and isolate and do lockdowns when the virus gets out of control yes that's exactly what we want you to do um we want there should i mean biden even admits himself they we should have dealt with the we should have dealt with the testing uh we have more work to do on testing, you know, infrastructure, more work to do. You've been in office for over, you know, for a year, you know, um, and Trump is like, you've had so the, the, the people in charge of so many resources in charge of the CDC, formerly before this pandemic, one of the most widely respected um, infectious disease institutions in the world. Um that had so many resources, so much expertise, knew how to do this stuff. And you're telling me that you didn't know that you had to develop a testing infrastructure two years ago? Of course they knew. They were, they've been refusing to do it over and over and over again. They've had a million chances to build a national testing and tracing infrastructure, and they refused to do it. Yet here we said, you know, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, uh, UPS, all these corporations make multiple tens of billions of dollars during this pandemic. They're not taxed at all. No, no infrastructure has been developed. The resources are out there. Nobody has forced those resources to go where they need to go. Um, and that's, that's the bottom line. Yeah. One, yeah. Could it have happened that every American got mailed, not one test, but 10 tests, you know what I mean? Six months ago in preparation for the very predictable and inevitable uh, mutation of this virus. Yes, of course that could have happened. Could could tracing infrastructure have been developed in school sites um, and, and could it have been expanded in my hospital site? Of course it could have. But the mentality is they, they want to do everything on the cheap. And it's called a lean production model. It's been happening in corporate America and it's been happening throughout the public sector where they just want everything to happen uh, just in time to to cost as little uh, and to be as staffed as little, so that they can so that they can maximize um, uh, profits um, and minimize costs, and um, that's the way American capitalism works. And um, in healthcare, this pandemic has just revealed how much of an unmitigated disaster that actually is. Right, and, and um, before we have to wrap up here in a minute. Can you give a, a quick synopsis of what kind of transformative changes we do need to see in our healthcare system so we don't repeat this in, in the future? And, and we, we have about a minute left, so we'll have to go probably a little I'll faster than you'd like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. First thing is um, Medicare for all, point blank. You need to equalize funding with healthcare institutions. You need some sort of national infrastructure to be able to deploy uh, public the health resources. You need to re, re, um, 
employ and refund county health departments so that every county in this country has enough resources to know the actual people that live in that county, know their health problems, they'll be able to get them and build trust and get them vaccine information and get them a trustworthy uh, medical home. You need to revamp uh, uh, primary care in this country. Nobody has trust in the medical institutions in this country and for very good reason. And that's why there's vaccine hesitancy and refusal. It's why far right wingers can take advantage of that mistrust. Um, and, uh, and then we also need to massively restructure uh, uh, hospital personnel training. Uh, they, there should be no reason we have a nursing shortage in this country. There should be no reason we don't have uh, uh, 15 hundreds seconds. of thousands of trained, hundreds of thousands of trained uh, nursing and um, nurses aides and physician personnel uh, to be uh, mobilized for this pandemic to be able to provide the care that people need. Uh, that okay. should be a priority, not um, not getting an Amazon package in in two days. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Sean Pe- Petty, emergency pediatric nurse at Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx, uh, frontline, a very essential worker who's been in the thick of this since the pandemic started. Thank you so much for joining us on WBAI radio this evening. And thank you for all the work you and your colleagues are doing. Thanks. Appreciate it. Okay. We will be back after this short break. was Here You Come Again by Dolly Parton. Welcome back to the WB to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 streaming online at wbai.org. We are here and we are going to give you a little bit of information about our monthly lease at um, the radio tower and how we need to raise money to pay that. Right, John? That's right, Amba. So WBAI uh, has to pay $17,000 a month uh, for its lease at four times square where it has uh, both a transmitter in a small room and then the antenna up on top of that 52-story skyscraper. And, and, and being up on top of that tall building right in the middle of mid-Manhattan makes that signal go all across the five boroughs and well uh, into New Jersey, Long Island, 
up uh, the Hudson River Valley and into Connecticut and you're know, reaching so many uh, listeners in, in all these different uh, neighborhoods and, and towns and cities in the New York City region. And it uh, obviously it starts with the, the workers and the volunteers at the station. But if, if we don't have that antenna and, and a transmitter in, in four times square, we, we don't have anything We're you know, we're just uh, people uh, talking to ourselves. So, you know, it, it, New York's an expensive place to operate, you know, $17,000 a month, uh, you know, is substantial, but of course uh, we all pay high rent in New York, whether you're a radio station or uh, a small business or, you know, somebody uh, renting an apartment. And so it's one of the challenges WBI faces and it's our, you know, our listeners, our, our community that, that makes up a community radio station that, that, that makes the difference here. And, and the station is trying to raise $250,000 this month. So it has that, that bill covered at the beginning of 2022. So it doesn't have to look over its shoulder every month or two, like, Oh, are, are we going to have the money or, or are we going to have to you know, deal with creditors here? We can stabilize the station in 2022 and focus on other bigger, longer range things. Once we get the antenna money uh, locked down and that's what uh, this is, this is about. So, uh, you know, people can call uh, uh, 212-209-2950. Uh, yeah, Derek, we'll, we'll be with you in, in one moment. Um, and oh, and also crazy. people can, can go to give number two WBAI. Yeah, I can't, I can't hear. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what's at stake. We, we, it's our listeners all over the New York City area, whether you're in Washington Heights or Cambria Heights or uh, Diker Heights, you know, whether you're uh, on Houston Street or in Hudson County over in New Jersey, or if you're in, in Weehawken or Secaucus or Montclair or Fort Lee or Asbury Park, all those New Jersey city towns are out on Long Island or, you know, in, in Queens or Brooklyn or um, Staten Island, you know, we need your help. We need you to step up at 212-209-2950. We'll talk about that some more in the show, but Amba, I know we have a, a exciting uh, second segment here with us, uh, some really important guests. We do. And again, that number is 212-209-2950 or give the number to WBAI.org. But now pivoting to our second segment, um, we're going to talk about a labor struggle that's been going on since April. Um, since then, there's been an ongoing fight to unionize the employees of Amazon's four Staten Island warehouses. And on November 12th, the Amazon labor union organizers actually withdrew an authorization vote petition to the National Labor Relations Board. That's NLRB. You guys might hear this term um, because they were alerted that they didn't have enough valid signatures in order to officiate a vote. So they withdrew that petition. They withdrew the request to vote. They went hardcore for six weeks with lots of on the ground organizing at the warehouses. And they have filed a new petition, believing they have enough union cards from a third of the warehouse's workers now. But they're only going with one warehouse, which is the biggest of the four Staten Island warehouses. And that is JFK 8. So here to talk with us about all of that in this update is Amazon Labor Union or ALU President Chris Smalls and the Vice President Derek Palmer. Um, welcome, Chris and Derek, to the show. Now, just wondering, Derek, can you hear? Yes, I hear you. 
Okay, great. So we're going to jump into the first question. Last that I heard from you guys, the plan was to organize all four of these warehouses um, in Staten Island. Now you have, you know, made the pivot. You're going to officiate a vote for one warehouse. So could you tell us about that decision to to change just to JFK 8? Um, Well, right now, you know, I think it's important that we get the the largest facility, which is JFK 8. Um, and then, you know, eventually we are going to get to the other buildings, obviously. Um, uh, we just wanted to switch up our strategy a little bit. Um, there's, there's like, there's some inside information that, you know, I would love to leak out about the reason why we're doing that. But, um, you know, right now, you know, I just, it's just important that we focus on JFK, but there is, there's definitely more to it. Trust me. Right. Um, and a few days ago, the NLRB, uh, reached a settlement with Amazon uh, on a, a number of things in terms of how Amazon reacts to union, you know, union organizing on on its work work sites, and it included uh, uh, new rules that would uh, allow uh, people to spend more time um, before and after work at the break in the break rooms and in the I think the parking lots at the Amazon facilities, um, and also some. Uh, requiring Amazon to send out email notices to its million or so uh, workers about uh, their rights to uh, organize or join a union. Uh, Can you talk about the significance of that? Are are these new measures going to help the work you all are doing out there in Staten Island? Uh, Chris or uh, Derek, if you want to speak to that. um, Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, bro. Uh, Yeah. Um, this uh, this will definitely encourage workers to start organizing their workplaces. This is uh, as you mentioned, uh, one of the first uh, of its kind. Really, this large of a settlement, uh, first in American history, the largest for the NLRB, the largest uh, nationwide with over a million employees affected by it. Um, so this will encourage the workers and their you know per, uh, workplaces to uh, start organizing and, and start. Uh, forming a union, just like we did in Staten Island. We uh, we we started with just a worker-led cooperative, and now we grew to a union where we operate like a union already, uh, without even being uh, uh, recognized by the company. Um, so that's what we're trying to get to, is just make sure that we have a stronghold at one facility, and we can eventually branch out to other facilities uh, with the encouragement of what we got going on here. And the situation was so bad with the intimidation um, that's made some headlines, both about what Amazon's doing in Staten Island and down in Bessemer. Um, but, but folks, what Amazon had to send to its employees said, we will not tell you that you cannot be on our property or that you need to leave our property 15 minutes after the end of your shift or threaten you with discipline or that we will call the police when you're exercising your right to engage in union or protected concerted activities by talking to your coworkers in exterior non-work areas during non-work time. So um, tell us a little bit about maybe what I think Daquan Smith, um, Daquan Smith, who was fired, um, a homeless person who was fired for, you know, who was pinpointed and some of that intimidation that Amazon has been doing. Um, Derek, you can answer this one. Chris, we have one for you next. Um, Yeah, you know, um, you know, those changes that they made, that the the board made, you know, they're um, very powerful and it's going to, you know, encourage other workers um, to to speak out and organize with us. And, you know, we're, we're happy that the board took 
took these steps um, in the right direction. And, you know, like Daquan, Daquan's um, situation, you know, it sucks because, you know, he was just getting, you know, coming out of his shell and, you know, starting to really support the ALU. And um, it just sucks that he was just, he was fired um, because his manager actually knew that he was involved in, in, in organizing and, you know, to the point where, he was having a dispute with his his manager and he pulled out his wine garden right was wine garden right card and that wine garden right basically said basically says that um you know the way that you're treating me is wrong and that if i wanted to you know if i were ever disciplined i can have a witness with me and um ever since then you know it seemed like he was like retaliated against um so like workers like daquan um any other workers that want to organize, they'll be more confident to organize now with these new um, rules, with this new settlement that the board put in place for Amazon. So it's it's inspiring. And then in November, Chris, you and another union leader, Brett Daniels, were arrested outside of Amazon's warehouse after they called the police on you for unionizing, which hopefully now, you know, that's not going to happen. But tell us about that. Yeah, that was uh, another one for the books. I mean, we, we got the police called on us several times since we started. Um, that was probably about the third or fourth time. So the police definitely knew uh, what we have going on. I mean, if you was under a rock, I don't know how you didn't know about the union drive in Staten Island. So, and, and, and the fact that they're unionized and they are well aware of the protests and demonstrations we have here, because they mentioned it to me. Um, that day, yeah, me and Brett was uh, at the tent on normal day, getting ready to sign workers up. We just set up. Um, and we were approached by about six NYPD, uh, one of the lieutenants, uh, he showed me his, uh, cell phone. It said my name and it said four to five people protesting. And I was confused because I'm like, well, obviously it's, it's only two of us here and, uh, we don't, we're not protesting. We're, we're, uh, organizing, you know, we do this every day. We've been here uh, at that time, seven months, you know, you guys know this already, you know, my name, you know, you came over here. So what is the issue? The issue was that uh, Amazon, you know, they wanted us off the property. They, they want to get us off the property by any means necessary. Uh, they build up this barbed wire fence that's around the, uh, the union tent. They, uh, they just built a scaffold. I don't know why they need a scaffold out here. This is the first time I've ever seen that at an Amazon warehouse. And um, the cops were just uh, added a sentence to union busting. Uh, unfortunately, one of us was arrested, De- Brett uh, Daniels was arrested illegally, by the way. They had no reason to arrest him. The, the, we have refused to give the cops our identification because they already knew our identification. When they came over there, they said my name. When uh, I told them that Brett doesn't own any of this equipment, it's all under me. I picked up the phone and I was on the speakerphone with my, one of my attorneys. So they didn't arrest me because they feel like I was, I would have probably been you know, all over the front page and they were arresting me. So they went after Brett, you know, uh, they, they had no reason. They knew that he was a worker there. We explained that like he's a literal worker at Amazon. He's across the street from his occupation. And you guys are, you know, we're on public property. We're on, we're on public property. You have every right to be there. And um, they, they just, I guess they wanted to flex their badge and, and, and arrest him and make a statement, but it didn't get anywhere. We went to court and all the charges were dismissed. Right. And, and just so our, our, our listeners know for a little bit of context, uh, 
And Chris Smalls uh, worked at the at the JFK warehouse before he was fired in March of 2020 by Amazon for uh, protesting the uh, poor uh, uh, health uh, conditions in the warehouse when the pandemic began. And Derek, you continue to work inside the warehouse. I understand you've been working as much as 65 hours a week um, while also uh, leading this union organizing drive. Can you talk about a little bit about the sort of the 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 conditions for union organizing inside the the warehouse i mean i understand there's a uh, hundred or more members of the organizing committee um are, are those people how public are they in 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 their activities how are they known to management and and what kind of uh, uh pressure or heat do you face as a, a highly visible uh member of alu who's working inside that warehouse um, well, we have our you know, executive board, which is all Amazon workers. Um, um, they're, you know, they're pretty out there. You know, the management at Amazon is well aware of who they are and obviously me as well. Um, um, well, you know, it's, it's not really, not really an issue for me. Like I, I don't mind, you know, that management knows everything that I'm doing. You know, I, it's no issue. Um, I like to let people know you know, that I'm heavily involved in this movement um, so that I can, you know, inspire them to, you know, to join as well. Um, so there's no, it's not really too much pressure as far as, as far as that goes. Um, you know, as far as like the working conditions, uh, the working conditions, I, I can say are horrible, you know, uh, as we all know, the Omicron variant is rising. And right now, as we speak, I have, I have the Omicron <laughs> So I'm I've been quarantined um for about a week now. Sorry. And yeah, it's all good. Um last week I was, you know, there's was a lot. Um uh, right now I'm doing better. Um but yeah, like the, the conditions are horrible there. You know, like there's so many safety barriers that Amazon is pushing back on. You know, they're pretty much returning back to the pre COVID um policies. You know, they're trying to get rid of the cell phones. They're trying to, you know, they, they already got rid of the, uh, the, the um, what do you call that? The, uh, the temperature check when you walk into the facility, that's gone. You know, the social distancing, the lack of social distancing is no, they're not implementing any type of social distancing at all. Um, workers are working on top of each other. There's, there's also a, a lot of workers who don't even wear their mask inside a facility. And even management, they wear their ma- their masks below their nose, below their mouth. You know, they have conversations with workers like right right in front of the face, no six feet at all. Um, so they're they're really trying to return. You know, they're trying to put profits over people, which they always do. And they feel like these safety measures are getting in the way of them uh, making the most profit. So um, that's what's been going on for the past. I, I mean, it's it's been happening for a few months now so um it's unfortunate and you know the the cases have gone up since they pushed back on these COVID safety measures and you know look at me like I have I have COVID and I haven't had I haven't had COVID I had COVID one time and that was like the beginning of the pandemic um so you know right now it's it's a crucial time like I every every person that I talk to you know, whether they're Amazon worker or non-Amazon worker has tested positive. So, um, you know, it's just crucial and it's, it just sucks, you know, it just sucks to see this, this company push back and, 
not care about their workers, you know. And then not only that, you know, the fact that they're trying to take away our phones now, when we just heard about the incident that happened in Illinois, where workers were trapped inside that building when a tornado happened and they didn't have their phones on them. They already pushed back on that cell phone policy back there. Yeah. So um, and for, it's, it's, it's a lot. That sounds like a lot, Derek. And for our listeners um, yeah. who don't know, there was a, a tornado in Illinois. Six Amazon workers died. Definitely the situation could have been safer. We should look it up. Um, but we're going to have to go ahead here and ask our last question. So, Chris, just tell us, you know, what you guys have been doing in the past few days since you went public with the fact that you're going to vote with JFK and what your plan is until the vote um, and when that will be. And also, what can uh, people who want to support you do uh, from the outside? Absolutely. That as well. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. We are... <laughs> I'm outside of JFK as we speak. We're out here signing people up, continuing our, our campaign. Nothing's changed for us. Um, it starts with us on the ground, and uh, we, we just have to continue to stay the course, uh, con- continue building our relationships up with our with our coworkers, uh, continue um, just advocating for workers' rights. You know, so we're we're out here every day, and we're going to continue to be out here throughout the uh, remainder of this year and uh, next year. We are going to get ready for an election here in New York. So um, hopefully this time around, the board makes the right decision. And uh, they, they they go with the workers' interest. The workers' interest is that we want an election here in New York and we want a union. Um, so people can support us. Um, if you don't have a job right now, come get one. Come get one with us. Help us out. If you, uh, if you can't do that, uh, please donate to our GoFundMe. We're worker leg, grassroots, independent union. Every dollar, every penny goes towards our efforts. Our GoFundMe can be found at AmazonLaborUnion.org um, and uh, on our social media at Amazon Labor, on Twitter, um, on Facebook, uh, TikTok, and Instagram at Amazon Labor Union. Okay, great. Well, Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer of Amazon Labor Union, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. We're going to go to a quick music break and we'll be back uh, with our last segment. You should have been downtown. The people are rising. We thought it was a lockdown. They opened the fire. Them bullets is flying. Who said it was a lockdown? Goddamn lie. Oh my, time heals all, but you out of time now. Judge gotta watch us from the clock tower. Little tear gas cleared the whole place out. I'll be back with the hazmat for the next round. We was trying to protest and the fires broke out. Look out for the secret agents, they be planted in the crowd. Set a civil unrest, but you sleep so sound like you don't hear the screams when we catching beat down. Staying quiet when they're killing niggas, but you speak. That was Lockdown by Anderson Peak. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm John Tarleton, and I'm here with Amba Gagarian, also from the Independent. And uh, in our third and final segment, we're going to talk about uh, women uh, prisoners who were transferred from Rikers Island to uh, Maximum Security State Prison. But uh, once again, we do want to urge our listeners to support WBAI and during this emergency fund drive. The, the phone number is 212-209-2950. 
or give number two, WBAI.org. Um, uh, Amber, you want to uh, uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, I would like to elaborate on that, John. Um, I was hoping you'd ask me. So, again, folks, we need money. Unfortunately, our lease at WBAI for, for our tower, for our radio transmitter is $17,000 a month. And uh, we we need to raise enough money to not be behind on rent, as unfortunately we've been in the past year. And, you know, I've been the listener who's in the car and is thinking, oh, they've been doing this fun drive all month. People are definitely giving. I don't need to give. Well, you know, if everyone thinks that way, we're, we're not going to have money to pay the lease. And, and, and we need the lease in order to give you the news and the talk shows that you love. So please, if you can, give five, ten, fifteen, a hundred, five hundred, a thousand dollars to WBAI by calling John. Hit it with the phone number. Yeah, 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. Or you can go online, give number two. Do- WBAI.org. You can make a, a one-off uh, contribution, or you can sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as ten dollars a month to become eligible for all sorts of awesome benefits. And also, I just want to say, you know, on on Tuesday nights we have the the indie radio show at six o'clock. We'll have the WBAI evening news. Also, have an Extinction Rebellion at at, at six thirty uh, later on. Uh, it will be uh, out FM and then at nine o'clock on the count, which is a, a show uh, 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 hosted by formerly incarcerated people for incarcerated people. It was founded by the great Eddie Ellis, um, who is uh, passed on, but other people are carrying on his work. And in this final uh, segment, we want to get a quick update on a, a really terrible situation uh, with more than 200 uh, women and, 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 and transgender persons who were transferred out of Rikers uh, a few months ago and actually have landed in arguably worse circumstances. And uh, Julia Thomas uh, had an excellent piece in the uh, current issue of The Independent about this. Uh, Julia, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thanks for having me, John and Amba. I'm glad to be here with you today. Yeah, so, but, absolutely. Yeah, just, you want to go ahead, John? Sure. Yeah, just for starters, Julia, can you can you uh, summarize uh, what's happened with the with these uh, two hundred plus uh, people that were transferred and and why it's a, a really desperate situation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, since um, you know since October, um, uh, t- hundreds of people have are have been slated to be moved from Rikers Island Jail, which is a New York City jail. Um, to a facility called Bedford Hills, which is a maximum security prison um, uh, about 40 miles outside of New York City. And the reason for this is because um, people have long been decrying the situation at Rikers throughout the pandemic. Um, You know, there have been uh, 16, um, 16 people have died inside Rikers, and there have been you know, numerous um, people pointing at and like widespread calls for, you know, everything that's been going on inside the jail. And um, as a result, uh, Governor Kathy Hochul called for 230 women and transgender people to be moved out of the 
out of the facility. Um, but uh, basically, this has led to a lot of complications around what it means for people who were previously in pre-trial detention and what it means for them now to be uh, be held in, uh, you know, as people who have been sentenced uh, in a state prison. Uh, and as, as we've also seen a huge uh, COVID outbreak in Bedford Hills, um, as of December 8th, uh, 19 people had tested positive for COVID-19, you know, and uh, at that point, even numerous tests had had not even come back. So we know that since then, with the surge of Omicron, that many more people have tested positive. So on many levels, this is, you know, a violation of people's rights um, and in the criminal justice system. It's a humanitarian crisis and a public health crisis, which we've long seen in jails and prisons uh, throughout the United States during the pandemic. Right. And, and we know, we know that 19 is the, not the number of people that have Omicron in Bedford House. I mean, I was on the phone with some guys that are inside upstate yesterday and they're, they're saying it's festering. It's, it's everywhere. So, you know, but you know, you, you know, Julia said how these people are held pre-trial. So most people know this, but you know, you're in Rikers, 90% of the people in Rikers are being held before they go to trial, so assumed innocent, right? And then they're sending them to a maximum security prison, prison, people that are sentenced for life, you know, however long. Well, people people are treated completely different. So tell us a little bit about what the situation is at Bedford, what it was before, you know, these transfers were made, and the discrepancy between being at Rikers, which is terrible, to being at Bedford House, which is terrible, but means being transferred and far away from your family. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, with with the conditions at Rikers, I mean, for years and years, organizers, impacted people, people inside have been, you know, demanding that Rikers be shut down and closed. Um, and of course, being at Rikers is absolutely horrible. But um, what hasn't been as covered by the media is um, how bad conditions at facilities like Bedford Hills have been for a long time, even prior to the pandemic. Um, I've been in touch with people um, inside Bedford Hills, as well as, you know, family members of those who are being held there. And I mean, you know, throughout the pandemic, conditions have been horrible, but particularly this summer, things really escalated with um, some severe contamination of water going on. Uh, People were reporting water tasting like sewage, like cars and, you know, just seeing lots of particulate matter inside the water. People also reported months of ice, you know, having to take ice cold showers. And, you know, on top of that, for years and years, people inside have, you know, have experienced, you know, constant exposure to, to mold, to rats and roaches. And as well as, you know, there've been numerous cases of, you know, mistreatment and abuse by officers that, um, you know, incarcerated people at Bedford Hills have, you know, have pointed to. And, you know, and and this is not to mention that the first person to die of COVID um, inside a New York state prison um, was Darlene or Lulu Benson CA, who was a 61 year old black woman um, who had been at Bedford Hills for seven years. So, you know, this really points to the fact that Bedford Hills is a hotbed for this, for COVID-19, and it's a hotbed for injustices that we're seeing um, inside the criminal justice system. And 
you know, in terms of also the implications of this transfer, um, one of the things that, you know, the, the attorneys that I spoke to have told me is that, they, you know, people, impacted people, attorneys, uh, the New York City appointed counsel on trans and gender nonconforming people um, inside New York City jails were not consulted prior to this decision to transfer people upstate. Um, there was really little thought put into what the implications of it would be. But one of those major implications is the fact that people suddenly who, um, you know, are perhaps close to their trial date, who are closely consulting with um, their legal support, suddenly um, have much less access to that legal support. And that's a constitutional right that people have. And, um, you know, there's just a huge problem around also what this means for, um, you know, people also having access to their community, to their loved ones. Rikers is already isolated enough. It's hard to get to but that, yeah, the miles and miles between New York City and Bedford Hills, as well as limited visiting hours, really right. impacts people's ability to to right. um, to their to access to, to liberation. And, and they support. say they're bringing shuttles, but they're not. So thank you so much, Julia, avid journalist. You can read her article in the latest issue of the Indie online or at a newsbox near you. We appreciate having you on. Thank you for having me. Always. So we, we just have another minute or so here before we have to, to leave. And once again, I want to encourage our listeners who can do so to give to WBAI during its emergency fund drive for the Tower Fund, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, or you can go to give number 2 WBAI.org, make a one-time contribution online, or sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month and be able to support this station a little bit at a time each month, you know, month after month. That uh, I can tell you, you know, when you're running a, a nonprofit organization, having that monthly support from month to month uh, helps a lot. So if you want to become a WBAI buddy, that's also awesome. And uh, I think we have to uh, wrap up now. And uh, um, Amba, it's been uh, great being here uh, on the air with you again today. Absolutely. And we're going to leave our guests with Tenebrae by Osvaldo Golijov. Enjoy. <laughs>